0: that appreciate you leading us in music and worship turning your bibles to ruth chapter 3 ruth chapter 3 as you get there just a quick announcement just uh, restating what jackson mentioned earlier next week we have something called as thanksgiving feast and for that we order food from uh, from feed store which is a wonderful store uh, of feed or food. <laughs> well, as you can see, I didn't really prepare my remarks there, but, but there's food that we order, so we need you to register, and that is available on our website. I'm also planning to send an email out uh, related to that. I've also m- put the links out in our GroupMe. If you don't have GroupMe, um, let me know and I'll, I'll add you there, or I can send you an email, but just be sure to to register. We would love to have you. It's a wonderful time of coming together, giving thanks. Uh, we'll finish up on Ruth chapter 4, so the book of Ruth, and then we'll get an opportunity to, to come and share with the rest of the group how the Lord has been working in your life. Uh, perhaps you want to take the time to read the passage that has been an encouragement to you. Uh, perhaps you want to share a prayer request with the rest of the group, whatever it is that, uh, that you would like to share with the group to encourage them We'd love for you to do that, and we do that next Wednesday. So, you know, we've been making our way through this short book. It's only four chapters, eighty-five verses. It takes approximately sixteen minutes to read the entire book. The book is short, but it's packed with powerful lessons about God's sovereignty and the providence. And his providence in the life of a believer. Something that we were just singing about. Uh, this is a God who is worthy of all our praise and worship. Uh, he is a holy God. He is a sovereign God. And he works in our life for our good and for his glory. You know, so far we have seen two major movements in the book uh, or major acts, two major acts. An act. One, we saw a family of four, Elimelech, Naomi, Mahalon, and Killian respond to the famine in the land of Judah, and instead of responding with repentance and trusting in the Lord to provide, they leave the land and settle down in Moab, which is just across the river, perhaps a distance of about 65 to 70 miles. Within a few months of being in Moab, we see Elimelech, the head of the house, he dies. And Naomi chooses to remain in the land with her two sons, who eventually marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And eventually, within the next 10 years, even Mahalon and Kilian die. Around the same time that this is taking place, Naomi hears about reports of the Lord visiting his people and giving them food. Uh, Verse 6 in chapter 1. With no one to hang on to, and in anticipation of salvaging her remaining life, she decides to return home to Bethlehem. Orpah chooses to remain in Moab, while Ruth, we are told in verse 14 of chapter 1, clings to Naomi. When Naomi realizes that it's a waste of time trying to convince Ruth, she agrees to take this young Moabite widow of her son back with her to Bethlehem. As we come to the end of chapter one, though, we begin to see things uh, change. We see the first signs of hope where we're told that these two widows come to Bethlehem uh, or came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, That we're told in verse 22, and that is the beginning of Act 2 of the narrative. The story, though, if you've tracked along with us or if you've read the book, you know that. It continues to soar in providing hope and future as we see God providing food for the two widows through the extraordinarily generous heart of one man, Boaz, who is a wealthy landowner. Twice in the second act, we are told that Boaz was a kinsman, A close relative, that is. Uh, This man, Ruth, uh, Naomi tells Ruth, this man, Ruth, is our relative, one of our closest relatives, verse 20 in chapter 2. He is a kinsman redeemer. Uh, We come today with that background to Act 3, where we see the first part of what it means to be a kinsman redeemer. Next week, Lord willing, we will see the kinsman redeemer in action. But today we see the story continue to build and provide hope and a promise of redemption. You know, every generation has had ways in which marriage proposals take place or or are initiated. Esther and I grew up in a culture where parents or older mentors were actively involved in seeking for a spouse for their children or for those that they were mentoring. The individuals did have a choice, by the way but there was an active involvement of the parents or guardians. Once we moved to the western part of the world some 20 years back, uh, we learned that this, that was one way to do things, and that there are other ways, such as dating, to also accomplish the same thing. Now, it's hard for those who grew up in a dating culture to imagine how marriages can be arranged, and I would say even vice versa. Now, overtly, this chapter may come across as if it is only about a marriage proposal and a bold one at that. As we get into the text, you'll realize that. But underneath the proposal is a plan of redemption that is being carried out. Now, in its immediate context, there is a redeeming of the widow from the life of widowhood to a promise of being married again. From being a widow, she's promised that she will be married soon. From a life of insecurity as a single woman in the culture that she was living in to a life of security as a wife. But in its ultimate context, it is pointing us, all of us, to that one great Redeemer who promises to redeem all who seek refuge under him, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is the theme of this particular Lesson. If I had to summarize the lesson for us, this is how I would put it God providentially and redemptively works in and through the lives of godly people to restore hope and secure the future for his people. God providentially and redemptively works in and through the lives of godly people to restore hope and secure the future of his people. I've titled our lesson for tonight, The Promise of Redemption. The Promise of Redemption. Let's begin then with the text. There are three scenes in this chapter. The first scene is from verse 1 to verse 5. The second scene from verse 6 to verse 15. And then the third scene from verse 16 to verse 18. Let's begin with the first scene, which I've titled The Plan of redemption, the plan of redemption. Now similar to chapter 2 which begins and ends in Naomi's house, we see chapter 3 follow the same pattern. The beginning and the end of the section is the conversation between Naomi and Ruth and while the middle section takes place in the field, uh, in today's chapter it takes place on the threshing floor. In chapter 2, Ruth took the initiative of reaching out to her mother-in-law and to ask for permission for gleaning. In chapter 3, we see Naomi taking the initiative uh, to reach out to Ruth. Notice verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were?" Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. Uh, this section begins with Naomi asking Ruth two, two questions, two rhetorical questions, and these questions give us an idea of how marriage was thought of in the ancient Near East. Uh, firstly, she asks: notice verse 1, should I not seek security for you? Uh, the word manoa there, which means security, can also be translated as rest. Uh, this is the rest. This is the security that a single woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. Should I not, as your mother-in-law, seek this for you, Ruth? Secondly, she asks, notice verse 1, Should I not do this so that it may be well with you? The reason I seek this rest for you, Ruth, is that it may go well with you. Now, how will it go well? We have to recognize what widowhood meant in this culture, in this time period. You know, there was nothing worse than being a widow in the ancient world. Widows were taken advantage of, or they were completely ignored. Uh, They were almost always poverty-stricken. This is why God's law on gleaning had a provision to provide for them. All that widows could look forward to were difficult times. Ruth's well-being, then, meant the removal of the reproach of widowhood. It meant a solution for physical and financial necessities of of life. And it meant a life of less less anxiety and, and less pressure about the future. So Ruth's redemption, then, is Naomi's goal. So Naomi asks a rhetorical question, and the answer to those questions is, of course, yes, But what is the solution? What is the solution? What is the plan of redemption? Here is the plan as she puts it in verse 2 onwards. And it has to do with Boaz, who who she says is a relative of ours. You served with his maids. He will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. I think I may have a picture. Probably not. Um, The threshing floor we see was a place where the grain was separated from the harvested, uh, harvested wheat or barley in this case. Uh, the stalks were usually crushed either by hand or by an oxen, and then the valuable uh, grain, that is the inner kernel, separated from the worthless chaff that was there. Uh, the floor usually was made of rock or soil and located just outside the village. Uh, it was usually on an elevated platform, And what would happen is that when winds would blow, it would blow away the chaff and it would drop the kernels down. Uh, That's how they separated the kernels from the chaff. And so that's what was being planned for that evening. Uh, Boaz probably expected it to be windy that day after sunset and therefore he planned to do this in the evening. Ruth, I want you to wash yourself, she says, uh, then anoint yourself with oil and then put on your clothes. In most translations, it's translated best clothes, but you'll see it in italics, which is to say that in the original it is not there, or italics for some of you. There was a certain way that I want you to dress. Now, why does she say that? Because, you see, there was a certain way that widows dressed and looked, and therefore they could be easily recognized in those times. It was the way they kept to themselves or carried themselves and with that instruction on bathing and anointing and putting on clothes Naomi was telling Ruth Ruth uh, it is time to bring an end to the period of mourning as a widow it's time to end this particular phase of your life and begin with a new normal. And by doing these things, the signal you will send Boaz is that you're ready to move on with your life. So I want you to do these things. I want you to go down to the threshing floor, but I don't want you to reveal your identity until Boaz has finished eating and and drinking. And once he lies down, verse 4, I want you to notice where he lies down, and I want you to uncover his feet and lie down. Now why would Boaz need to spend the night beside the threshing floor? Well, for two reasons. Uh, remember, this is the time of the judges. Wickedness and evil was pervasive in that culture. And so, was because of those things, there was theft. And so, one reason that Boaz may want to do that is because of theft. But the other reason was that he may be short of workers, and so he may be helping his workers. And so, maybe it is his turn that evening to thresh grain. And so, to do this... You need to be there at that time. I want you to do this, Ruth. And then, once you do this, Boaz will tell you what you need to do next. He will know the meaning of what you're trying to signal to him. And now that was the way Ruth and Naomi could convey their intentions to Boaz. You know, that was then, you might say, generations and cultures change. You know, but the act of making your intentions known to someone else, it remains the same. So what are some ways in which you can make your intentions known? Well, today it might be sending a lot of texts to that one person. Uh, or even when they are in a crowd, somehow finding your way to them. I don't know how you can do that, but that's one way to send a, a, a signal to the other person. Or It may be spending a lot of time with that one individual to the exclusion of all others. You don't have to be sat down and taught what those ways are, right? You know it because you're part of the same culture like everyone else. Some of you are thinking the leaders don't understand what those signals are, but I can tell you they do. There are ways in which you can make your intentions known to others. Now what is Ruth's response? Notice verse 5, all that you say I will do. Ruth is new to the culture in Israel, but she doesn't forget that she has a godly mentor in Naomi. Uh, She has no reason to doubt Naomi's plan, and she has no reason to doubt Naomi's intentions. So she is fully in on the plan. As we look at these first five verses, what are some learnings that we can take from there? Well, first of all, as regards to Naomi, the text indicates a huge shift in Naomi's attitude. Remember at the end of chapter one, she was the one who said, don't call me what? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. You know, she has fully left that bitterness behind and is no longer thinking about herself, but, not, but in now in God's grace, she is thinking about others. As she could have very well played the victim card and continued to selfishly seek the sympathy of the town folk as an older widow but she has put all of that behind and is now thinking of her daughter-in-law of her rest of an, and of her well-being what a model of selflessness not only that the text indicates the extent to which Naomi was willing to trust God what a bold plan this is. Uh, first off, there are, the, there are these two widows. They don't currently have the rest and the well-being that they are seeking. They don't have any children, which would indicate a hope for the future. Not only that, Ruth is a Moabitess, remember? A vulnerable position to be in as, as a foreigner. Yet Naomi is also aware of God's law. She knows that there is a law commonly known as the Leverett Marriage Law where a brother or a relative was obligated to provide for or redeem a member of the family, and in this case, a widow, by marrying them so that the future of the family was secured. And so here we have in Naomi a a model of someone who boldly trusts in God. What can we learn about Ruth? Ruth is also an example to us she's an example to us of being willing to listen to and to consider the advice of others. Especially if that advice is coming from a godly woman or a godly man. You know, many of you can attest to the fact there are those who have walked with the Lord longer and they give you advice. They counsel you. Or sometimes they admonish you. Don't take that lightly. You know, Ruth knew Naomi to be a kind, trustworthy woman, a woman of moral integrity. She knew that Naomi was well-versed with the local culture, and her advice and suggestions would be invaluable. Can I say to you, be open to receiving advice and and godly counsel, especially if it's coming from those who have walked with with the Lord longer than you have. From Naomi and Ruth's home, the scene now shifts to the threshing floor, where we see the scene unfold in really two phases. Uh, Phase one focuses on what happens uh, in the evening, and then phase two focuses on what happens in early morning. Uh, Phase one focuses on a bold proposal, and phase two really focuses on the promise of redemption. That brings us to phase two, or, or or, or scene number two, the promise of redemption as we look at verse 6 to verse 15. Notice, first of all, the meeting in the night. Verse 6. We begin by looking at a few things. First of all, we see Ruth's action. What does Ruth do? You know, the author of the text is really preparing us for the encounter, the meeting in the night by telling us that Ruth did exactly, verse 6, as she was told. Uh, She followed the advice of her godly mother-in-law. She went down to the threshing floor and did not reveal herself to Boaz. And just like Naomi said, wait for Boaz to eat and drink, and when he is lying down, then go and uncover his feet and lay down. Now look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her (coughs) mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered her feet and lay down. As you watch the scene unfold before your eyes, you can't help but think about a similar scene that unfolded in Genesis 19. You remember where Lot, who is the father of the Moabites, was made to drink and get drunk by his daughters, and he was drunk, so much drunk, that he didn't even realize that he was sleeping with his own daughters. And here on this evening, you have a Mobitus as well, but instead of Lot who was not in control, you have Boaz who is in full control and who has been introduced to us as a man of excellent character. How will he respond? Notice verse 8. It happened in the night or in the middle of the night that, a man, that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? You know, Perhaps Boaz is satisfied with the way the day has progressed and is now drifted off to a deep sleep. Perhaps it was warm when he went off to sleep and now it's late into the night, middle of the night. It's now perhaps chilly and with the feet exposed, he's beginning to feel cold and he wakes up in the night. He perhaps has woken up to get up as he gets up to cover his feet and he's startled to find out as he bends forward to find a woman who's lying at his feet. Now, considering the culture during the time which this took place in Judges, which was one of spiritual darkness, the presence of a woman in the middle of a night uh, could have represented someone who wanting to offer sexual favors. But that's not how Boaz reacts to Ruth. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he asks, who are you? Verse 9 now, Unlike the first time when he had asked, remember in chapter 2, whose young woman is this? Here he does not know the identity of this woman. So he asks, who are you? Notice Ruth's response, verse 9. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for your close relative. Even though he has not asked whose young woman she is, notice her response. She tells him whose young woman she is. I am Ruth, your maid, she says. No longer Ruth, the Moabitess. (coughs) Excuse me. No longer the daughter-in-law who returned with Naomi. No longer Ruth, the widow of the deceased Mahalo. No, I am Ruth, your maid, she says. And then the second part of her sentence is bold and, and it's daring. She quickly shifts the attention from herself and places it back on Boaz. And she says, spread your covering over your maid... For you are a close relative. Now why is it bold and daring? It's bold and daring because she's a woman and he's a man. She is a gentile, but he is an Israelite. She is a maid, she's a servant, and he is the master. She is a visitor, he is the host. She's a poor woman, but he's a wealthy man. She's a foreigner, but he's a native. It's bold and daring also because he's the one who asked the question, who are you? But by the time Ruth is done, the ball is back in Boaz's court as she raises the question about Boaz's identity. Notice at the end of verse 9, you're a close (coughs) relative. It's bold and daring also because what the phrase spread your covering really means. Uh, the, The word translated as covering is the same word that is translated as Wings in chapter 2 verse 12. Notice in verse 12. May the Lord reward your work. This is Boaz speaking with Ruth. And your wages be full from the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And in asking Boaz to spread his covering. What Ruth is actually doing. Is Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. Ruth is saying to Boaz. What the Lord did for me in In covering me with his wings, I want you to do the same for me. And the grounds on which she's asking, and even being bold to demand this, is that he is a kinsman redeemer. He is that relative, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) who is the closest relative who could marry this young widow and thereby provide rest and security. So far, so good. The two widows have done their part and they have no idea how this is going to end. But God does. Notice verse 10. Boaz on his part really immediately understands what she's asking for. She's not there asking for or providing any sexual favors which would, be, which would have been common in the immoral culture that they were living in. She was proposing marriage to him and she was doing it in the best way that it was possible. Thank you, Liz. Notice Boaz's reply. Verse 10 to verse 13. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You know, we, we as readers don't have an idea. If you're listening to the story for the first time, as readers, you don't have an idea how Boaz is going to respond, Right? It's one thing to be kind and generous to someone, it's whole another thing uh, to be asked to now do that for life, to, to be asked to, to marry them. And what Boaz does with that first sentence, verse 10, is that he breaks the tension in the scene. He calls on the Lord to bless Ruth, and with these, these words, really, he releases the pressure that has built up. Uh, after all, it's midnight, it's middle of the night. Uh, they're all tired and exhausted. I don't know about you, but if you're woken up in the middle of the night, I don't know if you are ready for a serious conversation, a conversation about who you're going to marry. Right? But here's Boaz, he's ready. He calls her his daughter. You know, there is a tenderness and a, and a kindness that is, that is displayed there. Isn't there? There's a gentleness in his response. You have shown your last kindness to be better than your first, he says, by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. What was the first kindness? Well, it was to leave her land, to leave her people, uh, to leave her culture, to leave her gods and follow the land and people and culture and God of the Israelites. And to adopt a new people, to adopt a new culture, And that was the first kindness. The last kindness was now to live as if the first kindness was true. And here we get really a glimpse of why Boaz may not have taken the initiative to pursue Ruth. He says, you've not gone after the young men or anyone else. You know, he very well may have been Naomi's age or Elimelech's age. She could have, if she wanted to pursue anyone a young man, but instead she pursues an older man. And there's no mention in the text, but Boaz probably knows that this is not something Ruth did on her own initiative. She must have been advised by Naomi. And so as he thinks of Ruth's actions, he says to her, your last kindness is even better than your first. And then notice what he says. He says, do not fear. I don't want you to fear Ruth. Even before he says the next thing, you already have a sense that Naomi's plan is beginning to work. I'm ready to do, he says, whatever you ask. Boaz understood very well what she was asking. She was asking him to marry her. I'm ready to do that, he says. And what is the basis for doing that? Notice verse 11. All my people in the city, all the important people and all the people ...that know you, know that you are a woman of excellence. You are a woman of high character. You are a woman of godly character. You are known as a God-honoring woman. You know, from here, it would have been very easy for Boaz... ...to just take things in his own hands... ...and just pursue marriage with Ruth. But just like Ruth, Boaz is also a man of excellence... Chapter 2, verse 1. He wants to do not only the right thing, but he wants to do the right thing in the right way. So notice what he tells Ruth, verse 12. It is true that I'm a close relative, but there's a relative closer than I. It is true that I am a kinsman redeemer, but I'm not the kinsman redeemer, which is to say there is another relative who's closer than I. He has the first right of refusal. Remain here for the night, and when morning comes, when it's early morning, I will approach him to see if he would be willing to redeem you. If he would be willing to be your goel, that is the word that means redeemer. If he, if he is willing, then I let him do it. But if he is not willing to be a goel to you, then I will be a goel to you. And I give you this promise as the Lord lives. What a tremendous promise uh, this is. Uh, The audience hopes, really, and I'm sure you are as well, that it's Boaz who ends up marrying Ruth. That would be the perfect ending. But even if he does not end up marrying Ruth, Ruth is leaving from this encounter at midnight, having been assured of rest and security in a marriage. Uh, She has been assured of her well-being. Remember the theme that I mentioned at the beginning, God providentially and redemptively works in and through the lives of godly people to restore hope and secure future for his people. Before we check the next section I just want to remind you what I did last time about who a Goel is or a redeemer. A Goel is really it's not an officially or formal position as such but it's just a close relative who could redeem a family member who has been sold into slavery? <coughs> Excuse me. Or it could be a close relative who would purchase a land from a family member that needed to sell that land because of economic hardships. And you'll see this come into play in the next chapter. It could also be a close relative for preserving the family name by virtue of or does that by virtue of marrying his brother's um, widow or relatives' widow also called as elaborate marriage. That was the role of a goel. With that as a background, we, bring, we, we get to phase two, which is the send-off in the morning. Notice verse 14. So she laid at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her, and then she went into the city. All of what we just spoke about took place in the middle of the night. Uh, Boaz was ready in the middle of the night to have a serious discussion, and as Ruth had earlier obeyed Naomi fully, she now fully intends to obey Boaz as well in his instructions. So she goes back to sleep, gets up early in the morning before it's light, and people can recognize each other, as he says to himself, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. You now begin to sense, really, why this was such a daring plan. Now this is phase two of this scene, and under the cover of darkness, Boaz initiates a second and a final conversation with her in these two verses, as he really continues to give proof after proof of his extravagant generosity, towards Ruth and Naomi. Give me your cloak, he says. And that is probably an outer covering that women would wear, usually an extra layer of covering when they were out in the town. The covering not only provided warmth, but it was also something that acted like a container. This is the cloak that Boaz has in mind as he asks Ruth to hold it open in a position, and then he measures six measures of barley, and then he lays it on her. This would have been somewhere around 15 to 30, between 15 and 30 pounds of barley. And then at the end of verse 15 we are told then she went into the city. Now the text ends with the sentence then she went into the city. But the original or the Masoretic text on which the Hebrew Bible is actually based it says he went into the city. You'll probably have an asterisk or some sort of a note if you have a study Bible on that. Majority of the English translations use used the feminine she because it is Ruth who is getting prepared to leave from the threshing floor, perhaps getting back to the city, and Boaz was expected to remain at the threshing floor. But if the Masoretic text is true, and I think it is, then the correct translation is really he went into the city. And you're sitting there and wondering, why is he making such a big deal about this text? Well, here's why. Because if he went into the city, then that means that he's acting with urgency on this matter. Uh, He's not resting on the matter. He's eager to see this being resolved. He's eager to see a solution to this issue. He has promised redemption for Ruth, and he wants to ensure that that happens. Let's be close this particular section. By way of application, I really have something called as frequently asked questions. Frequently asked questions on this particular text. I have three questions for us. Perhaps they're burning in your mind as well. Uh, First question, is this text prescribing how I should seek a spouse? Is this prescribing how I should seek a spouse? No. The answer is no. This is describing how Naomi and Ruth did it. You know, at the elder retreat last month, I was talking to Pastor Tom. I was was telling him, I'm going to do Ruth. He said, I have a list for you. It's called the biblical way of dating, by which he mentioned dating as was done in the Bible. I'm sure you're interested to find out how dating was done in the Bible. He gave me a list of nine ways in which men dated or dating took place know, as a pastor of singles I was very interested in this list and so I grabbed it as soon as I found it here's the here's the list uh, perhaps you're ready with your instruments to take note of how to date biblically uh, first of all in Deuteronomy 21 we are told find an attractive prisoner of war bring her home shave her head trim her nails and give her new clothes and she's yours you want a reference for that, that's Deuteronomy 21. Here's one from Exodus 2. Find a man with seven daughters and impress him by watering his flock. Uh, This is how Moses got his wife in Exodus 2. In Judges 21, another suggestion. Go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. This is the Benjamites in Judges 21. Here's number four. That comes from Genesis, right from the first book. Have God create a wife for you while you sleep. (laughs) But note, this will cost you a rib. (laughs) Genesis chapter 2. Number five. Agree to work seven years in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. Get tricked into marrying the wrong woman, then work for another seven years after the woman you wanted to marry in the first place. That's right, 14 years of hard labor for a wife. And you have how Jacob married Leah and Rachel, Genesis 29. Here's one he says, You will not want to try on your own. Don't try this at home, he says. (laughs) Number six, cut off 200 foreskins of your future father in law's enemies. And then get his daughter for a wife. That's David in 1 Samuel 18. Or if you go to Esther, number seven, become the emperor of a nation and then hold a beauty contest. That's how Ahasuerus got Esther as his wife. Number eight, when you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, I have seen a woman. Get her for me. If your parents question your decision, simply say, she's the one for me. That's Samson, by the way, in Judges 14. Or you might follow this one here. Go to your boss's party in the evening while he's sleeping in his office, uncover his feet, hope that he wakes up in the middle of the night. If he doesn't, uh, there's no solution for that in this text. Tell him your intentions to marry him. Have him purchase a piece of property. and Along with the property, get a wife as a part of the deal. That is Boaz in Ruth chapter 4. No, this is not prescribing a way to look for a spouse. So here's the learning from this text. There's not one prescribed way in which this is done. Recognize that this process, dating or arranged marriages, is really The way you decide is an issue of conscience. And I I would not, as a pastor, and I don't think any of our leaders also would insist on one way of doing it. Statistics tell us that 90% of Christian singles do get married. But then that creates another problem. But you might say, how do I know which group am I a part of? Here's my answer to you. Seek first. That is, seek with priority first the kingdom of God. The things that please God, the things that are godly, get busy serving God's people. And if God has marriage for you, there is no individual, no power in this world that will thwart his plans for you. Do you really think that something can stop God from getting that individual into your life? Absolutely not. So it's not a text that prescribes, it's a text that describes what's going on. Secondly, was there a sexual intention involved in this proposal? Uh, this is one that many commentators also side with. They think that Naomi is actually pushing Ruth into a very risky position where she is actually encouraging her to pursue Boaz sexually in that sense. The answer to this question is also no. no Naomi is not sending Ruth as an object to appeal to boaz's instincts the whole passage really if you look at it and the whole book screams of carefulness when it comes to character do what i'm telling you in the dark what is the unsaid assumption there if you did this in daylight you will put everyone in an awkward position including boaz also remember she does not lie to boaz's side but near his feet Uh, Both Ruth and Boaz throughout this book so far in these three chapters are hailed as men of character or women of character. Uh, Ruth also leaves, remember, very early in the morning before anyone could recognize her because why? Boaz wanted to protect her reputation. All of these things tell you that there was no sexual intention involved. But then thirdly, What principles then can I draw about a potential spouse from this book or this chapter? Well, let me begin by identifying some things about each character. And perhaps there's something in there that you did not think about. Or perhaps take it as a reminder. Uh, First of all, Boaz. Notice the tenderness and gentleness with which Boaz treats Ruth. He, he, He pronounces a blessing on her. He acknowledges her kind acts. He appreciates her. He calls her a woman of excellence. He is focused on her character. Can I say this as carefully as I can to the ladies who are in our singles group? Ladies, be very careful of a man who shows a lack of tenderness and kindness. A man who is quick to get angry and in whose tone there is always harshness and sarcasm Let me share this just as my opinion. Such a man needs to grow up. He's not ready for you. You know, gentleness is not weakness. It is self-restraint. Boaz was someone who was gentle and kind. Secondly, Boaz was one who was concerned about Ruth's reputation. He did not want to do anything to bring any disrepute to her name. It matters, even in your dating relationship, how you treat each other. Don't come under the pressure of the culture to act like you're already a married couple. No, be concerned about each other's reputation. There was a a protective instinct that he had about her. Notice also, thirdly, his generous spirit. He gave... And he gave and he gave some more. And I also point out something that is not in the text, but really that something that is not explicitly mentioned, but you cannot help but miss the spiritual maturity of Boaz. Don't hesitate to tell someone who is approaching you that you don't think they are spiritually mature. You see, Boaz lived his life in the constant presence of God. The two times and in fact that the word Yahweh is used in this chapter are both coming out of Boaz's mouth. He is a man who lives in constant presence of God. What can we learn from Ruth? Well, she was also a woman of character. Notice that in her character there is both firmness and delicateness at the same time. It requires firmness of character and will to abandon everything that you've grown up with and follow someone into their new culture, into their new land, into the new people group. She was a woman of firm character. It also requires tenderness and delicateness to respond the way Ruth has responded to Naomi and Boaz. Also notice the attitude of submissiveness in Ruth. She heard godly counsel and she followed godly counsel. She listened to Naomi and then she listened to Boaz and their instruction and she followed it. You've seen scene one, the plan of redemption, scene two, the promise of redemption and finally scene three, the prospect of redemption. As you read this section, you sense the atmosphere that's pregnant with expectation. Notice verse 16. When she, that is, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. You know, when Ruth returned home, Naomi immediately asked her to give a report, right? How did it go, my daughter? Uh, Give me a report of your time at the threshing floor. It's very likely that perhaps even Naomi did not sleep the entire night. Uh, Perhaps she was wondering what was going on at the threshing floor. Uh, Perhaps she was even praying for Ruth and Boaz that the Lord's will would be done there. And so Ruth proceeds to give her a report of all that Boaz had done. And we as the audience are given just a highlight of that encounter. While we are just given a highlight, Naomi actually gets the full story. Then we are told something that we are not told before. Notice verse 17. Ruth reports Boaz giving about six measures of barley. But for the first time we find out that he gives her that because he does not want her to go to Naomi empty-handed. It could be that Boaz just wanted to give her something from the overflow of the blessings that he has received. But it could also be, and it's more likely the case, that Boaz is indicating to Naomi that he is interested in Ruth. Daniel Block in his commentary writes, It's a sign of good faith of his determination to carry through with his promise to try try to gain the right to marry Ruth. And if he could not, then he full intended to see the closer relative marry her. He may even have intended the grain as a down payment of the bride price that is paid at the time of betrothal. Uh, end of quote. And so you see, it may be, and it surely looks like, uh, Boaz is indicating to Naomi that he is interested in Ruth. And notice Naomi's response in verse 18. It becomes clear that, That is how she received it as well. And here you will find Naomi's advice is opposite of what she told Ruth at the beginning of the chapter. There she told Ruth to do something, to take action, and having now taken the action, her advice to her is wait. Sit tight. Wait until you hear the end of the matter. While you sit tight, while you sit back and relax, our Boaz is not going to sit back and relax. In fact, he will not rest until he has settled or resolved the matter. Verse 18. And that brings us to the end of this third scene. Naomi took the initiative, got things rolling. She concocted the plan, put the plan together. Ruth carried out the plan, and Boaz responded right on cue. And along with Ruth, we are all waiting to see how the matter turns out. In chapter 4. What can we learn from this particular section? You see when it comes to seeking a spouse. Or praying for a life partner. Do the right thing. The right way. And with the right purpose or goal in mind. And what is the purpose or goal? We're all to live for the glory of God. Do the right thing. In the right way with the right purpose in mind. Secondly, once you have done this, sit tight. Rest in the Lord. Wait upon the Lord for what only he can do. You see, if a friendship or a dating relationship is built on a weak foundation or with wrong intentions, it is like that. It, it might work in the short term, but it will be a disaster in the long term wait on the Lord. I know it's tough for those of you who have prayed for a long time but if this chapter and what is mentioned in this chapter is true and it is then we can rest in God. We can rest in his providential character. Thirdly and finally don't be distracted with the characters in the story. Because I want to re-emphasize again that God is the main character. God is the hero of this particular story. He is working behind the scenes to bring about people and individuals together. He is putting plans together. You and I have no access to those plans. But we can trust this God. He's a faithful God and know that he always will have our good in mind. Something that will ultimately bring him glory. And so God providentially and redemptively works in and through the lives of godly people to restore hope and secure a future for his people. Boaz, you see, points us as the kinsman redeemer. Boaz points us to the ultimate redeemer. He is, Boaz is God, and he is your God. As we end this chapter and look forward to what the Lord has for us next week, we will get a fuller understanding of what that means and what, what Boaz did. Let's close with a time of prayer. Father, thank you for these reminders from your word. Thank you for this story. Thank you for your love and your care and your faithfulness in our life. Lord, we look back and we see you always being faithful. We see you that as someone we could always trust. And if we can trust you for our past, Lord, give us the strength to trust you for our present, and Lord, help us to trust you for our future. I do pray for those here, men and women that are single, and Lord, perhaps not yet in a relationship which looks to culminate in a marriage. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, would you give them strength? Would you provide for them all that they need to continue to trust you and to trust your plans and purposes in their life? Even now, help them to reach out to you, Lord, in prayer, resting in you for all of their needs. You are a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who provides for us. Help us to rest in that. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.